Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Demigod Edition. It's Wednesday, May 3rd, 2017. On today's show, the truly honorable Jonathan Demi, a one-of-a-kind journeyman auteur, director of concert films, documentaries, such masterpieces as Silence of the Lambs, Something Wild, Philadelphia, has died. We discuss what without any doubt will become one of the enduring Hollywood legacies. And then Adam Leon is the director of a beloved indie feature called Gimme the Loot, his latest film, Tramps is a total charmer, a caper involving two wayward teens. It's now streaming on Netflix. We'll discuss it, the state of indie film, and evolving distribution patterns with Mr. Leon himself. I cannot wait. And finally, the conservative columnist Brett Stevens was hired by the New York Times opinion page, presumably in the cause of intellectual diversity. But is uh, diversity the same thing as fudging the facts or sticking your thumb in the eye of liberal piety? We discussed Stevens' controversial hiring and his first column, which called into question the consensus on climate change. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Stephen. Uh, and of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hello, Stephen. Uh, guys, before we go on, um, I just want to say quickly, how much fun was Washington, D.C.? Yeah. What a great town. What a great show. That was delightful. Yep. Love the venue. Love the audience. It was really fun. And there were so many hardcore longtime listeners there, too. Like, I met someone there who listened to the show who was like, oh, yeah, I've been listening since your first episode. You talked about Juno. I was like, we did talk about Juno <laughs> on our first episode in 2008. Thank you for oh remembering. I did not entirely remember. Oh, yeah, there were people that had voyaged far. It was it was really awesome. Only after the headlights kind of came out of my doe-like eyes, you know, that sort of happens when you're doing one of these live, live shows, that it occurred to me how gutsy it was for you guys to kick off the show with that song after one rehearsal um and uh, i think the one so, rehearsal was plenty audible but i'm glad we kicked it off too it gave us energy for the whole show that's like only the third or fourth time i've ever sung in public yeah i didn't realize that you had you've only done karaoke twice, like twice in your life yeah um as may have been apparent to be able to actually separate my quavery voice out from dana's dulcet one but uh you were good company and what a valentine to that city it was very fun to to toast our listeners. now the question here, here. is are we gonna are we gonna sing something australian in australia no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, probably not. But um, all right. Well, moving forward here. The film director, Jonathan Demme, died last week. He was 73 years old. Uh, this is where one would naturally write or say he's best known for dot, dot, dot. And yet he's best known for 
so much. Uh, Silence of the Lambs, Stop Making Sense, Philadelphia, Married to the Mob, Melvin and Howard, Swimming to Cambodia, countless music videos. It's a long and varied list. If I had to reduce it down to a single word, and it turns out I wasn't alone in this, though I, I only subsequently discovered he's being widely described as a humanist, as a great humanist. Um, he was in love with people. You sense that in every frame the man ever shot. He was never glib. He was never contemptuous. He was a natural with a camera, but not a show off. Uh, his stories were always about people, and he always seemed to care about them deeply. Dana, um, the obvious place to start is with you. We, it's it's such a varied career. Um, it, it ranged over so many different kinds of movies. Uh, we thought the best way to do this segment was for each of us to pick a Demi movie and rewatch it or watch it. Um, first, just say a little bit about what Demi meant to you and then tell us what movie you watched. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that approach, which we I think we also took with, with Nora Ephron after she died, that we each took one of her movies and brought it in as a point of discussion. But it makes particular sense with Demi because he was so prolific. He did so many different kinds of genres. I mean, he was a, he was a great documentarian. He did incredible concert documentaries. He you know, made romantic comedies and obviously one of the great sort of great thrillers in Hollywood history, Silence of the Lambs. So there is no really way to get in and summarize it um, or, or to do some kind of survey. And, you know, I, I must say that I, I probably have seen fewer than half of his films because there are dozens and dozens of them. But it really is hard to find a, a kind of any pattern in his filmography, except, as you say, his curiosity and passion for life and faces and human stories, and in particular, stories that don't quite seem to fit into a Hollywood template. I almost picked Silence of the Lambs because I felt like one of us had to pick it. And I think it is probably one of the movies that will be a really lasting part of his legacy, The Silence of the Lambs. But the one that I really wanted to rewatch because it had been so long and it brought me such joy was Stop Making Sense, which is the concert documentary about the talking heads that he made in 1984. So I watched that last night and was just so incredibly blown away by how original it is. There, Not only was there not any concert documentary like it beforehand, I don't think there's been another one like it since. Does, is it at all fresh in the two of you, in your minds? Do you remember Stop yeah, Making very Sense? Much so. yeah. I mean, the way he builds, right? The way he builds a narrative. It's not just he who's building it. It's the talking heads themselves. And it's because he had seen a version of this concert in 1983 and talked to them afterwards and said, you know, I love the way that you're, this whole show is kind of building a narrative. And uh, that it starts off with just David Byrne coming on stage with an acoustic guitar and singing and then slowly, including techies rolling out equipment and slowly this whole company assembles over the course of this hour and 40 minute long movie until at the end there's this rollicking party happening on stage. But it's so intimate, that documentary, and it, it really manages somehow to not show the audience almost at all, and yet give you a feeling that you're you're present at this at this live event. It's not it doesn't do the typical concert doc sort of thing of cutting back and forth between what's happening on the stage and the response to it in the audience, and then cutting away to a close up of somebody's hands on a fret keyboard or whatever, and and then interviewing the musicians and in little cutaway interviews. It doesn't have any of that kind of spinal tap classic, very spoofable structure of a of a music doc. Instead, it really seems to be inside the music and inside the performance in this this very intimate way and it was really beautiful to watch again wow, wonderful um julia what uh, what movie did you pick i took the occasion to watch rachel getting married i think inspired somewhat by our uh conversation about anne hathaway a couple weeks ago when we talked about colossal i've just been in an anne hathaway frame of mind i think i just heard her interview on marin too um and she got such high marks for that performance and i've heard such amazing 
things about uh, the family drama surrounding a big event like a wedding, but just the notion that that when families gather to celebrate something, tensions mount and interesting interpersonal situations are created is naturally appealing to me, separate from the movie's uh, reviews and the Anne Hathaway of it. And I, I have nothing original to say about that movie's charms, but it is wonderful. And as someone who's very close to her sister and has a much less complicated relationship with her sister than the two sisters in this movie do, uh, is there's a scene right at the beginning when Anne Hathaway's character Kim returns from rehab and first sees her sister, played by Rosemary DeWitt. Um, and Rosemary DeWitt is there with her like sturdy friend who's been by her side for years and is helping her get dressed and has not been like a total layabout drunk who has other problems we learn about as the course of the movie continues. Um, and yet the two sisters can find each other on this emotional level of giggles and memory and um, intimacy that they conjure in their performances and that that he frames uh, in that house in a way that just felt so true to sisterdom to me uh, in a way that was striking and astonishing. And I also really love the way he he uses the house in that movie. Like they're kind of in this big rambling, upstateish seeming place, um, but the 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 drama of the kitchen and the dishwasher and the room and the hallway and uh, the just the location of a family's home as a place for conflict and sadness and love and woe uh, is is incredibly skillfully used. Why why did you leave me? I wasn't there. I didn't leave you. Why would you leave me in charge of him? Because you were good with him. Mom, mom, why would you leave no, you were a drug addict to watch your son? No, you were good with him. Mom. You were the best you were with him. Something that I was thinking about when you're talking about the geography of that film, which is something great about it, the way the geography of the house and the grounds is established and that there are all these handheld cameras moving through it, is that... Jonathan Demi, and this is this speaks a lot to his democracy as a as a director and how much he wanted everyone to matter, including the extras and the background people, is that he gave handheld cameras to a lot of the actors and and even the lesser performers in that movie, so that you know he himself was getting sort of the main story, but he also incorporated some footage that was shot by some of the actors in the movie, and I thought that was a wonderful detail. Mm. Um, I'm eager to see it now. Um, I, the movie that I picked was Philadelphia, which I'd never seen before. Um, I hardly even know where to start. There are so many aspects of the movie that I found both brilliant and moving. But um, the first is that there's a technique. I mean, if you had seen Silence of the Lambs and then watched this movie not knowing it was directed by Demi, you would strongly suspect it was his film. He uses a technique that he used in Silence of the Lambs of really moving in on people's faces and letting faces. He does not have a traditional way of um, establishing shots relative to over-the-shoulder shots, relative to close-ups. His, his use of close-ups is much more prominent, and yet it's not mannered at all. It feels like a very earned intimacy. The second thing he does is that um, how people stand close to one another and convey tribal acceptance or tribal expulsion uh, with physical intimacy is set up beautifully because, of course, what happens is it becomes known that the Tom Hanks character, who's a up-and-coming lawyer at a prominent Philadelphia firm uh, has contracted the AIDS virus. He becomes a kind of modern leper in a way to the 
you know, partners of the firm and on and on. And most people have probably seen it, but, but he just sets up the way in which men establish fraternity with one another with a lot of physical gestures and proximity. They also establish power over one another while they're doing it. I mean, sort of with the nature of handshaking in a weird way. I mean, he's so sensitive to that and he sets it up so beautifully so that when Hanks becomes to them a kind of untouchable, you feel the force of it without having, you know, it's shown rather than told. Let me put it this way, Andy. Your place in the future of this firm is no longer secure. We feel it isn't fair to keep you here when your prospects are limited. With all due respect, this, this is preposterous. It, it, it doesn't make any sense. Oh, you're right, Beckett. You don't have an attitude problem. Take it easy, Walter. If you had lost confidence in me, why'd you give me the Highline suit? Andy, you nearly blew the entire case, for Christ's sakes. That alone is inexcusable. It would have been catastrophic for us. Uh-huh. I had never seen the movie before, and it's both dated and very moving or it was to me uh even though very dated and and frankly it's it's so moving because it's so dated um it reminds you that when that movie came out a significant portion if not a majority of americans probably did not regard homosexuals as full humans um and that a humanist would make that movie not only to address the acute crisis of the of the illness but just to play a role in the history of making fully part of the human family, the gays and lesbians of America, um, you know, as they should have been from the beginning, it, it made me realize that a lot of cliches about how art sensitize, sensitizes people to the realities of others and might actually expand one sense of who's included in in humanity and 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 what rights and sympathies they deserve those actually can be true i mean i i i was really like to me that that movie i understand when people watch it now they feel as though it's completely from another era and it is but to me it's 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 a morally important film that's also a weepy through and through and um he was the perfect director for the material i think i'm sure you're aware of this but i'm not sure our, our listeners necessarily are is that philadelphia was apparently made in part as a reaction to the protests that Silence of the Lambs had engendered from from the gay community, yes. many of whom believed that the character, the Buffalo Bill killer character that she's chasing, who's sort of a transvestite, it's it's not it's never said that he is gay or that he's transgender, but he sort of plays with femininity in this somewhat stereotyped way and has, you know, a high feminine voice and a pet poodle named Precious and all kinds of things that, you know, could easily be seen to be negative gay stereotypes. So because of those protests in part, although I think he had already had the project going before, he decided to make Philadelphia his very next movie after Silence of the Lambs. Then Philadelphia itself, I think, came in for some criticism from the gay community, although it was probably split at the time. And I was having a discussion about this on, on Twitter the day that the news broke that Demi had died. And Mark Harris, who's been a guest on our show quite recently, was has some interesting things to say about the gay community's perceptions of Philadelphia at the time as opposed to now. I think I, I had posted something to the effect of, you know, that movie must seem so dated now, but it was so moving and so important at the time, talking about Philadelphia. And uh, and and Mark answered something like, you know, I think for a lot of gay viewers, it felt the exact opposite, that, you know, at the time, the movie seemed offensively narrow in its representation of gay people. It's focus on the Denzel Washington straight character and his kind of very slow learning process. Yeah, it's sort of like the, it has like a bit of the help problem, like, well, so the straight guy is learning that the gay guy right. is human. right. 
But according to Mark, I mean, he said, I feel like that that film would have aged better for me now and that I would see what Demi was trying to do in a way that I might have been too heavily defended to have seen at the time because we were so seldom represented on screen at all. And something that Demi said about the AIDS crisis and making that film is that his target audience was deliberately intended to be people who didn't care about the AIDS crisis, you know, that he wasn't making it for sort of, you know, his sensitive artistic community of people that were losing friends and were aware of it as a huge public health crisis. He was making it for people like the Denzel Washington character who were just cluelessly coming around to the fact that it was even happening. No, right, right. The analogy is to, to kill a mockingbird, not to the help, right? I mean, you just... It, yeah, it, sorry. It, I didn't came... mean to besmirch No, 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 no. I know. Comparison. And I'm not... Right. I'm not throwing that back in your face. I'm just saying that, you know, th- that at, for that moment... The moral education that your average, you know, Hollywood moviegoer needed vis-a-vis gay life in America and the AIDS crisis. You know that that it, the movie was p- pitched to that, and it it played. It must have played some part in this, you know, kind of Im- Im- immense moral education. You know that straight America has gone through. Uh, homophobic America has gone uh, through over the last 20 or 30 years. And so in that sense, in addition to just being an incredibly well-made movie, and Denzel Washington is, I mean, he's phenomenal in it. Hanks looks so young. He's so good. Uh, I was, I expected it to be filled with howlers. I thought I really did not, I was really pleasantly surprised in that, in that regard. Uh, All right. Uh, Jonathan Demme is, uh, I, he is really one of my gods. Uh, he made so many great movies, at the core of which was uh, a degree of, of personal and social sympathy that I think um, no one really has rivaled uh, of his generation, certainly. Check out his movies. Come to facebook.com slash culturefest and tell us what you what your favorites are and, um, and what you thought of his body of work. All right, moving on. All right, well, uh, before we go any further, um, Julia, no doubt we have some business to attend to. What do you got? Indeed we do. We have two upcoming live shows in Australia. The first, as part of the Sydney Writers Festival, is on Saturday, May 27th at 6 p.m. at the Sydney Town Hall. And then we have one in Melbourne on May 31st, a Wednesday, at 7.30 p.m. at the Wheeler Center with special guest Courtney Barnett. We could not be more delighted to be going to meet our Antipodean listeners. Uh, So please, please come on out to those shows. Also on Slate Plus today, at the very end of the show, Dana and I will be giving our lists of essential books as inspired by the conversation Steve, Jamel, and Isaac had a few weeks ago. Or will we? Maybe we'll just problematize the whole question of whether there are essential books you must read before you die. Slate Plus members get bonus segments like this one from all of their favorite Slate shows, plus ad-free podcasts. Uh, And it also happens that now is the best and easiest time ever to try Slate Plus. You can get it for free for 90 days by downloading our new iOS app at slate.com slash app. And then you get all the benefits of Slate Plus for three months. It's a brand new app and by far the easiest way to get those bonus segments and ad-free podcasts. So get Slate Plus by trying the app for free for 90 days at slate.com slash app. Okay, onward. Danny is a young child of Polish immigrants living in outer, outer borough, New York City. He's called upon to make what is most likely an extra legal delivery for his imprisoned brother. This he does reluctantly, though his partner in possible crime turns out to be an enchanting young woman who is no less confused, it turns out, and disaffected than he is. She's played, I should say, magically by Grace Van Patten. Equally magical is Callum Turner as Danny. When the pickup and delivery go horribly wrong, the two are sent on a mini odyssey to recover the mysterious briefcase. We'll be joined by the writer-director of Tramps in a minute, but first let's listen to a clip. What did you do? I, I was a bartender. 
But I made, I've been like fancy cocktails. That's cool. That's cool. I got this friend Lev that I went to high school with. He, he's a bar back in the city at this bar, and he's just like, I don't know, his favorite drink to make is just like egg okay. whites. Look, I wasn't a bartender, okay? I worked in a strip club. I bet you were successful at that, you know? What the fuck's that supposed to mean? Nothing, just because you're pretty and you're smart and... Well, I wasn't. I was only a waitress, okay? I didn't strip or work the back. I mean, I'm serious. I don't sleep around. What, you don't believe me? I believe you. Guess how many guys I've slept with. It doesn't matter. You don't no, have to no. tell me. Guess. I'm not Please. guessing. That's stupid. I'm not going to guess. Seven. Okay. It's not a lot. It's not a lot. I probably would have said higher. Oh, so you're saying I look like a whore now? No, I just, I just, I wouldn't even think you were a whore if you slept with like a hundred guys. Yeah, exactly. That's such a that's such a great scene, Adam. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, and congrats on a supremely uh, charming second feature uh, to go with the equally charming first one um we want i know in the discussion we want to get into the mode of distribution which is streaming on netflix slightly unusual for a film of this kind but um we'll get there but first um this movie has such a supreme uh, gentleness and i was trying to think of precedents for it and i came up with bill forsyth the scottish director from the 80s uh there's just a goodness a warmth and a gentleness even though there's a hint hint of uh misdeed and violence in the air what a wonderful movie. Talk a little bit about maybe who influenced you and, and uh, how you ended up making this film. I was on a, a, a real 30s, 40s screwball Hollywood romantic comedy kick. I love those movies. I love uh, Lubitsch. Uh, Trouble in Paradise was, is maybe my favorite movie uh, or definitely one of them. And I sort of, me and my co-writer, Jamin Washington, we wanted to do something that captured the feeling of those movies and didn't subvert the genre, uh, didn't wink at the genre, really sort of stayed true to it, delivered on its beats, its structure, uh, but took an approach that was hopefully something that was more modern, contemporary, maybe with characters you wouldn't normally see in that world, something that felt um, very genuine and and honest. Uh, I don't know if we always did that, but that was kind of the jumping off point. Um, and then we looked a lot at movies that, um, you, you know, t- took place between two people over the course of a short amount of time. So uh, we looked at It Happened One Night, we looked at um, Midnight Run, uh, we looked at Broadway Danny Rose. You know what I thought of in, in connection to that, the two people trapped together for a night was uh, in a different vein, but Martin Scorsese's After Hours, oh, right, yes. right? has a little bit that feeling of like romance, but also danger and, and everything happening in a very compressed time frame. Right, right. That's probably more on the danger tip. Uh, um, but um, yeah, and, and a good new, great New York movie. I love any movie that has Mike Birbiglia as the muscle. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, uh, tell us about the casting of Mike Birbiglia. So he plays, to, to describe to the listeners, a very inept kind of mid-level criminal who's trying to run this operation that is a complete disaster, which is unexpected casting for a comedian. Yeah. Um, well, I think first, so I, I knew Mike. Mike had seen my first movie. It's called Give Me the Loot. It's streaming on Netflix. Um, and he had reached out to me and, and we sort of became friends and... I wrote the role with him in mind. I first of all, I really love when uh, comedians play straight uh, in movies. I think that the, the comedians give such great face, and so um, a great example of this is The Informant, the Steven Soderbergh movie, where he sort of populates the um, the day players with these stand-up comedians and Paul Reiser and, and things like that. But they're not trying to be funny, but they're, it's just so entertaining. Um, 
so I wrote it for him in mind. It's um, that crew of guys are so I have to be somewhat careful here, but somewhat based on some people that I knew and some people also that Jamin knew separately. And we would talk about how in movies there's the that like the crew is usually has like the unhinged guy who's going to break your legs and people who are really trying to act tough when in all actuality, a lot of times it's just people who've gotten caught up in this. They're human beings they you wouldn't necessarily you wouldn't walk into a room and you wouldn't necessarily think that they would do this um and so probably's character is based a little bit on a guy that i that i knew a little bit that um that you sort of would never be afraid of but um but ended up being involved in some some sort of extracurricular enterprises how do i i don't know the safest way to say that but it also helps raise the question of like how much danger they're really in like the fact that he's He's not the heaviest heavy in the film, but that he's the criminal mastermind sort of helps the film maintain its feeling of being kind of capery, even though the stakes are actually real and they don't quite know how how dangerous their screw up is really going to be. And that uncertainty, I think, helps create the tension that like underpins the sweetness of them just kind of bumbling around. One thing that you sort of said in terms about Birbiglia and him, um, you know, uh, softening the stakes or softening the heist. I think that that was something that was very important for us. One of the editors on the project said the stakes of the movie isn't whether or not they're going to get the briefcase. The stakes in the movie is whether or not she's going to let him in. And yeah. I remember asking her once, do you think that's big enough? And she was like, that's much bigger than whether or not they're going to get the briefcase back. That's the premise of every great romantic adventure. And that, that's there is no stake bigger than that. Um, and, you know, also sort of like, are they going to change their lives, these two people who are stuck? And so we really didn't want the the heist is the the kind of match that that lights the that gives it sort of a, a, an energy to it. But it really is, I think, a story about these these two people who are stuck in their lives. So, Adam, you know, you're an old dear friend of mine. So your first movie had a traditional release for an indie film, won the uh, South by Southwest Prize, was released at the IFC in New York. Like people saw it in movie theaters. It was an indie movie theatrical release. And this one took it to Toronto and it sold to Netflix. And as by dint of selling to Netflix, will not have a theatrical release. Um, And I just was curious to talk to you about what that's like. Like, how, how does it feel to have a movie come out in this new modern way? It feels really great right now. Uh, a lot of people told me that I talked to about this process, who've gone through it, who know people who've gone through it, that wait until the movie's out. You're going to be so amazed when you see the reactions uh, on social media. And that's been overwhelming and very touching. I, you know, every day I can go on Twitter and see people liking the movie, not liking the movie, loving the movie, engaging in conversations about the movie that live all over the world. Uh, you know, people in small towns in South Africa and the Philippines and people in Missouri and Trump voters. And I mean, just like this sort of wide, huge range of people around the world. Uh, a, a lot of people in Guatemala um, seem to like the movie. Uh, and that's this was something that, you know, how do you find an audience for this film was a real challenge when we made it and something that we took very seriously. We felt strongly that uh, if we could find an audience, people would like it and hopefully they will. It's meant to be a crowd pleaser. Um, It's meant to sort of, as I said before, hit this genre and be for people who love a good romantic adventure, but do so in a way that's made by people who maybe 
are taking a different approach than would make a big Hollywood version of that um, or contemporary Hollywood version of that. And so there's a challenge without movie stars in it, uh, future movie stars, but without current movie stars in it um, to to find that audience. And I think I'm seeing in these last couple of weeks that audience being found in a way that I wouldn't, I don't think there's another way that they could be found. Um, so that's, that's really exciting. I mean, there's, yeah. How was the marketing different uh, on Netflix then for theaters? Like, is the process of figuring out what the image is that goes with the movie <laughs> different? Is the trailer process different? Like how, the, the experience of like, what should I see on this clicky screen that's right in front of me with where infinite options are, you know, the options are unconstrained by anything other than what's available on Netflix is different than like, oh, what's coming to the Cherie this week or next week? You know, which four of the indie movies that are out or the foreign films will show up at the place near me? Like, did that change the approach? Yeah, it's completely different than than the approach I had with my first movie, which was released by IFC, released very lovingly by IFC. And I think there's good things and you know there's advantages and disadvantages to both sort of maybe i could take a step back and even talk about how netflix sort of sees these movies because the marketing is different depending on their uh, classification of the movies um so basically they have movies that are or they have projects that are subscriber edition projects and they have projects that are subscriber discovery projects um and so we're a discovery we're you know smaller indie film and so wait sorry what that's where d- potential subscribers are supposed to discover Netflix or Netflix is helping subscribers discover cool shit. Netflix is helping the subscribers discover cool shit. So, for example, The Crown is something that's trying to get new subscribers to, to Netflix because there's a Downton Abbey demographic that, you know, maybe is slightly older, hasn't signed up for Netflix. Whatever. I don't know their sort of reasons why, but The Crown is something that... Um, that they feel can get people who haven't signed up for Netflix to sign up for Netflix um, around the world in the United States everywhere. They're very focused globally right now. And so those projects have, I think, actually more of a traditional marketing element to them. The actors go on the late night talk shows, there's billboards, there's uh, press junkets, there's screenings all over the world. And that's kind of a, a more standard model, a fancy model. It'd be very fun. Uh we're a discovery. And so Netflix's thing is our best marketing for your movie is Netflix. And that can be a tough pill to swallow. Um, I have drunk the Kool-Aid to a degree on that. I do think that it's true. And I think, again, I'm sort of seeing that manifest over the last couple of weeks. You see that with the amount of people who are watching the trailer and just and who are engaging on the movie. But basically, the advantage of being a Netflix original um, we could talk about the sale. There was even discussion about whether or not we were going to be an original or not. And we ended up really wanting to be an original because the advantage of being in a, a Netflix original is that of the 85 million subscribers and I think like 120 million users that they have, they're going to go on their homepage and put this in front of a percentage of those users that's substantial. So I have no idea. Again, the numbers thing can be frustrating because you don't know these numbers, but whether that's 15 million people or 25 million people are going to see Tramps at some point on their Netflix homepage through their Roku or through their computer or whatever. And it's going to, sort of going to be pitched to them. And of that... And it's, it's a click away, right? It's a click away. And, and it could be a banner. It could it could show up on Tuesday and not show up again for three weeks. Um, and that's based off of on their algorithm, on what you've watched the day before, on uh, whether they think you're going to like it if you just watch 
horror movies, you'll never see Tramps on your homepage. Um, it'll always be available in search. But that idea of sort of putting it in front of people who turn on their Netflix and go, what do I want to watch today, is how Tramps gets out into the world. Um, and they, we have publicists internally, and we have done interviews and had profiles and stuff like that. But from Netflix's point of view, this is something that's going to reach, you know, in theory, millions of people based off of them turning on Netflix or being subscribers to their Twitter and being subscribers to the YouTube. Right. I won't ask you for a hard number and, and wouldn't want it, but I'm curious whether you at some point will know how many people have streamed it. I will. Well, I mean, I will not. Yeah. Julian yeah. Assange. I'm going to do the Trump. Like, if you're out there, if you're... No, um, don't do that. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, no, I won't, I won't do that. I think there's... Uh, <laughs> There's some psychological frustrations with that, and I think there's some psychological real benefits. I think when we sold the movie, a couple of people who know me very, very well said, this is the greatest thing that could ever happen to you because you will not spend the next year and a half of your life obsessing about per-screen averages in Seattle and researching indie distributors in Spain. It's it's over. You know, they have it. They're going to put it out uh, around the world, 190 countries, 20 languages, all of that. A ton of people are going to see it and uh, go make your next project. Critics feel very divided about this model of, of distribution. And some of them, some of the some of the prep that we read for this segment were people really critics, movie critics really railing against Netflix and saying, you know, this model makes it really hard to find gems. And, you know, they really have to they have to rejigger the entire way they present movies to people. And it does seem to me that if it's going to be start to become a larger scale movie release platform, you know, that it's going to start to really compete with theatrical releases for what's the new interesting movie to see, the Netflix is going to have to come up with some different rubrics and, and ways of, of, of getting them into the public consciousness. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, that can be, uh, there's a few things, sort of a few thoughts I have on that. I mean, one is just, I think that there, and in some ways, maybe this is Netflix's Netflix hasn't done a good enough job of, of explaining this to the critical community, but I think that there can be somewhat of a misconception about how they go out with these movies. So they pay a fair amount of money for them. They get them translated into 20 languages. I mean, the process of quality control on these movies is crazy. They do so much work to get these movies out. Um, but they, what I think people don't understand is that they actually platform their discovery movies on site so that the first weekend, more people are going to watch Tramps or more people are going to be exposed to Tramps on that homepage in the sixth weekend than in the first weekend. So I know that a lot of critics have been frustrated because the night that the Sundance Film Award winner goes on or the night that Tramps goes on or the night that some movie that sort of maybe is in the kind of New York, L.A. film consciousness community um, goes on Netflix, they go onto Netflix and they don't see it on the homepage and it feels like it's buried in search. But that's not actually what's going to happen. But once you watch the movie, you're never going to see it on your homepage again. Um, so except for watch again section. So I think that that there's possibly a little bit of a misconception about um, how they put these movies out to their audience. But then there's this other, I think, fair claim that they're not doing things outside of the platform to sort of, they're not throwing a bone to um, to those film communities. And I feel that um, their, their point is, and I, 
sympathetic to it. I actually think it's it's an interesting point, but I think there's a counter argument too. Their point is is that like New York, LA, London, Paris, those film communities, like the people in those cities, they don't matter any more than a user in Kalamazoo or a user in Thailand. Um, and I think that there is something really beautiful about the democratization of that. Uh, at the same time, in those film communities, in those places, there are people who dedicate their lives to this. There are people who really make these movies, care deeply about them. And, um, and it can, you know, I definitely wish that there were press days and more press screenings and a premiere and things like that. I mean, ultimately, the biggest thing was that I got to make my movie 100% the way that I wanted to make it. And I think so many more people than I would have ever expected to see this movie are going to see this movie. And that's the hugest win. But when people do sort of lodge this frustration, I understand. Um, I'm happy as a filmmaker, um, but I but I see that point. All right. Well, the movie is Tramps, uh, as you've no doubt picked up uh, uh, by now. The uh, It's available streaming on Netflix. You should absolutely check it out. It is a complete uh, gem. Uh, Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about your movie, and congratulations. Thank you so much. It was really fun. Brett Stevens was the never-Trump columnist for the Wall Street Journal. This gave him some liberal bona fides, and so he was hired by the Times. His first column cast doubt on the certainty of climate science, which of course gives him huge conservative bona fides. But as people have pointed out, his the essence of his criticism uh, wasn't inciting instances of bad faith or data on the part of scientists, but by claiming that certitude is somehow itself a form of hubris. And it is this hubris, he concludes, that has choked off the possibility of an honest debate about climate change. Um, Julia, it's fair to say there's been a huge backlash against this column in media, social media, reports of subscription cancellations over this, uh, over at the Times. Um, Let's start with the substance itself, though. Um, Does he have any kind of a point? So I read this column early this week after having read much of the flap about it beforehand and was somewhat astonished by how anodyne the column seemed compared to the, I think, somewhat hysterical response to it. I'm not saying the column was good. I don't think the column was good. But I had seen many people calling him a climate denier and wondering how could the New York Times have a publicity campaign around truth and justice and uh, how could people give their subscription dollars to a place that would allow climate denialism to stand in his page, in, in its pages? And he stipulates in the column that the climate is changing and that that change is man-made, where he st- attempts to center his questions around uh, scientific certitude is around the question of, do we really know how bad the impacts of climate change will be? And should we base our policy around uh, those impacts? Now, he then does a fucking disastrous job of of rhetorically arguing that point. It's a complete straw man argument. He doesn't actually cite any examples of scientists claiming certitude about what the range of potential damage might be. And can he, I jump in and say the one hard number he supplies? There was a correction run later. It was actually slightly off. Yes, although that was around the question of warming, which he acknowledged. So he was, I think that's sort of less pertinent to the flaws of the argument, although a correction is never a good thing. But he never actually cites any examples of scientists claiming certitude about what the results of climate change will be, saying like, we know the seas will rise exactly eight inches by 2050 or whatever the hell. He All he does there is is use the rhetorical trick of citing Andy Revkin, who's a prominent climate science 
reporter and thinker acknowledging that sometimes there is too much certitude on the side of of people who are advocating for strong action against climate change. So he does the thing of like, let me quote your friend, potential rhetorical opponent, and surely you will cede all grounds to him. And then he wraps the whole thing up in this kind of like, isn't certainty dangerous? Isn't hubris dangerous? Didn't we know that Hillary was going to win? And weren't we wrong? Mightn't we be wrong about this too? Uh, And he puts this like long long epigraph, which I have a very, very firm anti-epigraph policy at Slate. No epigraphs may ever appear on Slate columns. And I think it's more appropriate for digital than print. But basically, you can always cut the epigraph off of any piece and make it better. And it would definitely have been true in this case. He squanders like 100 or 125 words that he could have used citing some fucking examples. A Galician proverb, right? Well, actually, at the in the kicker, he says it's Shashlamilosh. Uh, Did I pronounce that right, Dana? <laughs> I've tried to put so many shushy Polish sounds in it. But doesn't he say at the end of the piece that it's a it, it's a proverb from an old of Galicia, but uh, I've taken the epigraph for this column from the Polish poet, yeah, Szesla uh, Milos, um, who knew something about the evils of certitude. So basically, he's comparing climate scientists and their mode of rhetoric to, I think, Hitler and Stalin there. Uh, <laughs> what the ever-loving, I mean... It's just a really, really badly argued column. However, I think the much stronger response to it is to argue its points down than to, like, rend one's garments that this was allowed to appear in the pages of The Times. Right. Well, I mean, part of the, you know, at the very center of the conservative playbook is uh, is inspiring a hysterical liberal backlash and then making that backlash and that hysteria the topic of conversation and not the substance. So, Danny, we won't play into that at all. Let me let me just point out a couple of the rhetorical tricks in the argument. I want to hear what you have to say about them. It opens with a description. It, it doesn't make any allusion to climate science at, up for the first graph or two. Because it's all. too busy fact, trashing Hillary. Just just as a kind of a basic substrate for the column, let's just get started with that. We all hate Hillary. Oh, now let's turn to climate science. Right. He tees up the right-wing golf ball you know, very gingerly and very carefully by saying, you know, uh, uh, the Hillary campaign employed super smart data wonks to crunch numbers and they were all absolutely sure of victory. Um, I think this is kind of a backhanded swipe at data journalists as well, who are also, you know, obviously were modeling the election on a daily, even hourly basis and had her at something like whatever it was, 90 or 95%. They all turned out to be wrong. And then he does this pivot, which is, uh, are you with me so far? Good. Uh, which you made fun of very brilliantly on Twitter. Oh, God, that pivot is so intellectually dishonest. That was the moment that I emailed you guys and said, we have to talk about this Brett Stevens column. It's just so sophistic and so irritating, but go on. Okay, well, I don't want to stop your momentum, so I'm going to let you go. But I just want to quickly say that it seems to me he's, you know, the substance of the column runs together, you know, a kind of very prejudicial reading of uh, the arrogance of the Democratic Party uh, with something like a kind of technically accurate but ultimately insidiously misconstrued notion of how science engages probabilities rather than certainties um with the uh, uh, with the epigraph which is like existentially one should never feel entirely certain of anything because other than like death you know and misery these three are all kind of run together in this melange which is um i agree on first reading i agree with julia is anodyne but on inspection isn't the fact that it's anodyne, doesn't that mean it's just that much more insidious? 
to me, the anodyne tone of it, the, 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 the kind of friendly tone, like, let's just all be reasonable and have a conversation is where the sophistry lies. And I feel like I'm not scientist enough or historian of science enough to, to analyze that exactly. I just, you, you can sense, you can sense that, uh, the condescension to the reader, right? In that, in that pivot of with me. Okay. Now let's turn to this completely unrelated set of data and bring with it our knowledge that we've now gleaned from this anecdote about the Hillary campaign that no reliable data exists for anything. What, se- what it seems to me is, is happening there is actually some uh, kind of ep- epist- epistemological, I guess, like a, a shift where nothing can be known by the end of this column. Nothing can be known if you agree with the Galician proverb and Czesław Milosz and, and the climate deniers. The, 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 the group of people that he's creating, the kind of group of allies that he creates in this column is so vague and so suspect very early on in the column, if I remember right, there's a uh, there's an also an appeal to um, people who don't believe, right, to skeptics. He essentially says there are many Americans who don't believe this, and don't they count too, right? And uh, and that again seems to me like a, a strange kind of wedge to drive into the concept of truth <laughs> or scientific data actually being useful for creating policy in any way. If if we're just mm-hmm. bringing in a kind of a democratic vote of who believes, well, for one thing, there are a lot more Americans who believe in climate change than who don't, but if you're going to take this, you know, I don't know what the number is, say it's 20 percent of of people who are going to be hardcore deniers, then why don't we just have a column about flat earthing? You know, why don't we have a column mm-hmm. about. Right, exactly. Uh, and also, you know, the other point relatedly, Dana, is, is on, on that issue is, is, is you know, intellectual diversity. OK, well, just taking diversity first. Uh, where's the first black woman columnist for The New York Times? We're still waiting. That might have been a, a more salient box to check than uh, along with Ross do that and David Brooks, another conservative. The um, the second thing is intellectual diversity. Where is the socialist that has ever appeared uh, as a you know permanent fixture of the New York Times uh, page? What kind of outcry would there be if you if you had someone who is as far left as Bernie Sanders? So intellectual diversity has you know, only one end of the political spectrum represented on it. So that's complete nonsense. But I'll tell you what I find most utterly insidious about this is that, you know, the physicist Richard Feynman said, once said that science is the frontier of our own ignorance. Uh, He, you know, Stephen says something that's correct, which is that as with religion, science is done right when it's done in the spirit of incredible humility about what we don't know. And it's always done wrong uh, in the spirit of certitude. You know, science is inherently disproving what we used to believe. So behind us lies this vast well of ignorance and coming to grips with what we don't yet know. So in front of us, there's this incredible, you know, eternity of ignorance, right? It's kind of frontier of ignorance, as, as Feynman says. You know, ignorance pervades science and the spirit of science and always had. To try to turn that into um, an almost postmodernist critique of the ability to know anything for sure to me is is what's really toxic about that is that um it's it's purely an instrumental weapon brett stevens doesn't have firm or or deeply held beliefs about the nature of indeterminacy relative to human knowledge at all it is purely instrumental for him to take this kind of postmodernist stance as a way of sowing doubt towards the end of uh, forestalling social action uh, against private actors whose interests he takes more seriously than uh, uh, climate change, right? It's like, you know, that's what the nature of that argument is. And, and 
to use the word probability and the notion of probabilism um, as a way of saying that scientists can't, you know, really, you know, know anything for sure is so sophistic. I mean, I think he's playing grossly to the ignorance uh, of a certain portion of his readership under the guise of sounding sophisticated by citing probabilism in this way, because that just is how science works. Yeah. And Slate Science editor Susan Matthews wrote a very smart piece in response, pointing out that the distinction I'm drawing between like, well, he does not actually deny that climate change is happening or that it's man-made. He's just talking about like what the rhetoric is around what the kinds of damage and changes might entail. And that's actually a different thing. And he doesn't do that thing very well. You know, she made the case that, in fact, just sowing doubt about any of it is straight out of the Exxon playbook. And uh, it it still amounts to denialism, even if the target of the denial has shifted, because it tries to undercut people's sense of urgency or concern around this thing that's very abstract and very in the future and very hard to mobilize around because it's not like, do I have health care this month or what is in my paycheck or any of the more immediate order concerns that can, can are somewhat they're still difficult to politically mobilize around, but somewhat more directly tangent to people's daily life right now. And Stevens tries to make the claim, in fact, that he's reaching out to those people, right? I think in a couple of different places in the column, he, he seems to be saying, look, I want to bring us all together so we can have this conversation, but we can't leave out the people who are skeptics. Let's reach out to them, too. And the completely unacknowledged allies in this weird group of, you know, the Milosh club that he's creating for himself and the, and the reasonable doubters, the unacknowledged allies are the corporations and the businessmen mm-hmm. who profit from failing to pursue any public policy at all. And so that goes completely left out of the column, right? Is there a mention totally of unmentioned. Rex Tillerson or Scott Pruitt or what is actually fucking happening in the government right now? Anyway, the, this column yeah, to me I, was – I felt like the time should just fall on their sword and fire this guy. I feel a lot more strongly about it than Julia. I mean there are a lot of conservative stances that I would be interested in hearing defended in the Times and hearing the argument afterwards. But to act as the Times has done in their response to the backlash as if this is some sort of vibrant, healthy debate – just it, it just seems false to me. I will pinpoint before we close on this segment what I think is the single most insidious uh, part of the short piece, which is his insinuation that this is a socialist Trojan horse, right? That, that, that there are purely ideological reasons for overstating uh, the dangers of climate change in order to have you know governments and, and liberals seize more power via the solution. Uh, to, to insinuate that in a column in which you don't also mention a 50-year multi, no doubt in my mind, multi-billion dollar campaign um, uh, against uh, even the reality of climate change is is a gross public disservice. And uh, if I were James Bennett, I, if I were James Bennett, I would fire him. I really would. All right. Well, um, the column is called Climate of Complete Certainty. It's by Brett Stevens. It was in the April 28th, 2017 New York Times. No doubt you've read it if you haven't do. But please come to Facebook.com slash CultureFest and uh, tell us what you thought of it. All right. Moving on. All right. Well, now is the moment in our uh, program when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Well, my endorsement this week is going to sound like a product placement, and I apologize for that, but this is completely a spontaneous endorsement of a product that I love and enjoy and I'm very happy I purchased. And so if any other listeners are in the boat that I was before I got it, maybe it will help them. I think I've talked about this on the show before, but in my household for a while, there's been a music fidelity listening problem where essentially our only music producing machines in the house right now are laptops and computers. And uh, and so if we want to listen to a song or dance to a song, we're basically gathered around a tiny little speaker as if it's a pathetic little hearth. And I was looking for some way to address that without 
A, having to spend huge amounts of money, B, having to install some kind of complex system that wasn't compatible with this app or that program. And uh, and so I came across, because of my brother, and if he's listening, thank you very much, um, this, this cheap portable speaker. It's called a JBL Bluetooth speaker. And I never even really knew what to do with the Bluetooth you know, function on my computer before. But this is such an easy thing to use. I love it. It doesn't matter what you're listening to. It can be YouTube. It can be anything. I guess it could be a CD if you could play that through your computer. And uh, and you just hit Bluetooth and it immediately goes to the speaker. You don't have to set anything up. You don't have to even hook it to your wireless connection. It finds it itself. It's like this brilliant little speaker. Probably audiophiles are going to be writing me with little actually notes saying, well, the fidelity is not what it would be if it were blah, blah, blah megahertz or something. <laughs> but it sounds a lot better than gathering around a little laptop speaker and it's portable and you can just walk around your house with the music you want. So it's totally changed the way I listen to music, made me dance more, put on music more and be a happier human being. So look into it if you want some lo-fi portable music blasting, the JBL portable Bluetooth speaker. Julia, what do you got? I have two things. One inspired by that last endorsement of Dana's, which is that uh, Dan Engber wrote for Slate like five or eight years ago, a piece about the remote control and why like the design of remote controls is such a disaster. And in that piece, he um, excavated the excellence of buttons and the fact that we're moving to this touchscreen world where you don't actually have buttons there's a real loss there because you can do things with buttons that you can't do with a touchscreen, like learn the feel of the button and do something automatically without having to look at it. Or see in the dark, tell in the dark whether you did it or not, right? Yeah, and same applies to driving too. But in any event, this piece is great and it's about many more things than remote controls. But every time I interact with the technology in my home, I think about how I miss buttons. That's one. Two, um, Better Call Saul is back on television, and I would just like to remind the American television viewing public or that percentage of it which listens to its show that Better Call Saul is one of the best television shows that has ever been made <laughs> and that you must be watching it. If you are not watching it, get up to speed. It has all of the bravura storytelling of Breaking Bad and the beauty and the desert landscapes with a much more finely sketched sense of humanity and moral subtlety. The performance of Bob Odenkirk is extraordinary. The other performances in it are incredible as well. The The very first episode of this season starts a little bit slowly, but it is back up to full steam. Um, watch this show. So if your problem is that you're not watching it, heed everything I just said and start watching it. If your problem is that you are watching it and you just want to spend more time thinking about it, I would like to recommend with some reservations, the Better Call Saul podcast, which um, drops a couple days after each episode and features like Vince Gilligan and one of the longtime editors and like a round table of people, including Jonathan Banks, who plays Mike Armantrout, um, quelling about the show. And the podcast is great because you learn interesting things about how the shots were made and how they think about the characters. But it's also kind of great for how unlike the show it is. Like, it is shaggy as fuck. And and all it is is Vince Gilligan being like, oh, and she gave a wonderful, just wonderful performance. He has this kind of drawl. He just calls everything wonderful. And uh, like, they all just cavell about each other in a way that... So all the tightness of the writing, all the tightness and precision the wind. of the writing and the editing of the show are just like cast asunder in this podcast, which is literally like 90 to 100 minutes weekly of them just praising each other for their work on the show. And yet... I really love listening to it because I'm interested in how the show gets made. Uh, very quickly, um, uh, Philadelphia is uh, the song by Springsteen is so beautifully integrated into that movie. Um, it's just another statement by the boss that though he inhabits this guy guy brand, 
the man is moral sensitivity and new femininity embodied. I love Bruce. I love that song. And um, uh, now Square It, uh, Ryan Adams does a cover of it, uh, which he recently did in a London show, and it's on YouTube somewhere. Check it out. It's really good. But that's not my endorsement. I have never read a word, I'm embarrassed to say, until yesterday, never read a word of Bruno Latour, who's best known as the sort of Frenchy theorist who came after that first big wave of Foucault and Derrida, um, and also best known for being a a kind of postmodernist-y critic of science, uh, and science is a purely autonomous, apolitical, asociological realm. He doesn't believe that. He thinks it's political and sociological through and through. For that reason, he gets a lot of flack. uh, and became a symbol of, you know, everything can be said to be a socially constructed. Um, he wrote an essay in, I believe, 2004 um, called Why Has Critique Run Out of Steam? From Matters of Fact to Matters of Concern. It's a beautiful uh, and quite subtle uh, consideration of what theory, critical theory, the theory wars were about, what his place in them were how one should feel now that the political right this is in 2004 is starting to manipulate postmodernist tropes of of um post truth and you know inexorable subjectivity truth is what we say it is kind of nietzschean platitudes are now being taken up by the right uh whereas they had been the province of the critical left especially in the 80s um Latour handles it with such grace and with such intellectual subtlety. It made me realize that the cartoon I had in my head about who he was is completely wrong. He's obviously a, 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 a great intellect. So I'm very eager to read more Latour. So I recommend to our listeners, if they have any interest in this field, why his critique run out of steam. But I also invite those who have read Latour, and I know there are many, to tell me which book I should start with, uh, what your feelings about him are, um, how his career changed over its arc, on and on and on and on. All right. Dana, thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Julia, total pleasure. As always. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Networks. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. You can check out a really wide-ranging and captivating roster of shows at panoply.fm. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest for Julia Turner and Dana Stevens. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon. On the streets of Philadelphia Na 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 Ain't no angel gonna greet me It's just you and I and my friend No my clothes don't fit me no more